are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have Moshe Temkin from Harvard University to talk about what is the proper way to analyze history and what is the proper context. Before we start talking, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So I'm a professor of history at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and I teach uh, classes that are for students from all over the world. In my teaching, I focus on different kinds of leaders and leadership, especially from the former colonial world, the so-called developing world, however you want to call it. And I'm really interested in my research and teaching in the connections between American history and global history and the impact that the United States has on the world and also how America itself is shaped by its place in the world. So, you know, I've written on that subject a few books and I'm really interested, especially in making links between the past and the present. That actually leads to why we're having you on the show. About a year ago, or two, was it two years ago, you wrote an article on the New York Times saying historians shouldn't be pundits. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Okay. So it was, I think in 2017, I think it was in June of that year, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about the role of historians today, or you know the way I saw it in at least in you know 2017. The title that was given to the op-ed, "Historians Shouldn't Be Pundits," was not mine. Most people, you know, people know when they write for newspapers, they don't get to write their own headlines. So I'm not sure the headline actually captured what I was trying to do in the op-ed, but it did get I did some traffic and attention. So I guess the you know editors know what they're doing in that sense. So I was really bothered at that point by the way in which history was being sort of employed to address the new Trump era. You know, if you go back to like beginning of 2017, the feeling, the sort of the environment among a lot of people around me, I guess, and elsewhere was just this kind of shock and fear and anger, you know, and this kind of complete inability to understand just, you know, this explosion that happened in their lives, right? The election of Trump. And I think that when, you know, really wild things or, you know, crazy things happen in the world, that's when the media will often turn to historians and try to sort of put things in perspective. And so at that time, there were a lot of historians going on television, particular kinds of historians, and writing in the media, and they were being asked to kind of explain the rise of Trump. But the way in which that was happening, I felt like it was almost always through the use of like these analogies. So articles asking historians, which president in the American past is Trump most like, right? Is it uh, Andrew Johnson? Is it Nixon? Is it Andrew Jackson? Is it, you know, what have you? And Or it was sort of what foreign leader in, of the past is Trump most like? Is, you know, is, it, is he like Mussolini? Is he Hitler? And all these other analogies that were being made. And I felt like this was a really bad use of what historians can bring to bear on understanding something like Trump and the election of Trump. And so I wrote this piece in which I kind of uh, criticized that a little bit and said that analogies 
don't really explain Trump because we're living in a very different period from, you know, those periods in the past that were used as analogies. And also that what historians really can do, but we're not being asked to do by the media, was to actually talk about the things in American, recent American history that brought about Trump. Things like our political economy and the inequality that we have in American society. Things like foreign wars and the devastation that they caused. Things like, you know, voter suppression. Things like, you know, the way that Americans tend to, you know, worship uh, billionaires and celebrities. And how someone like Trump, who really is just a, you know, he never made any single contribution to the public good in his life, becomes a public figure in the first place and a plausible candidate for millions of people to elect as president. I thought that was something that historians were really well placed to explain, but they weren't being asked to do that. They were being asked to make these facile analogies that didn't really do much. So I wrote that piece, and it got me in a lot of hot water, I guess, because it was perceived by some that I'm sort of, you know, just saying that historians shouldn't intervene in public affairs or shouldn't be in the media, which is not at all what I was saying. I was just saying that they actually should be explaining things. They should be in the public light. I mean, I do that. I give interviews or write in the media when I can, and I'm asked to, so it's not like I avoid it. It's just that I thought that historians could make a better contribution. I agree. One thing that stood out for me is this one paragraph that I'm going to read out. Okay. But so do the dangers. Compared to Hitler, Mr. Trump looks less threatening than he actually is. Unlike Mr. Trump, European fascists were deeply ideological and would have despised his decadence and view of himself as a great dealmaker. And the story of Mussolini and Hitler is flattering to most Americans. We defeated them. And to me, that is the crux where I think they want to explain away Trump as like an anomaly and so that's why I personally believe they have so many outrageous comparisons. Do you agree? Yeah, so that was going on a lot at the time. I think that fever has gone down a little bit since then, you know, in the past couple of years. And I have to, you know, just as a kind of caveat to this, I really think that in terms of public discourse overall, we're in a better place now, I think, than we were when I wrote this op-ed. Some of the things that I wrote about, one of which you just quoted, I think are still around. You know, you hear that still. But I really think that, you know, that hysteria, as I'll, you know, I'll call it, has not totally dissipated. And I also think that at the time it was, in some ways it was understandable because of just the shock that people were in and also the behavior of the Trump administration and how, you know, for me, it was especially the treatment of migrants and asylum seekers on that plane and the sort of explicit racist approach that they had, that they made policies. A lot of these policies already existed before, you know, like in the Obama era. But what I think what the Trump administration was doing was that it was like taking off the veneer of respectability and just like, you know, throwing it in people's faces. So I think people had that reaction where, you know, they immediately started thinking about fascism and Mussolini and Hitler. But then I also think, you just said it, right, that it gets too many people off the hook, right? So if Trump is like Hitler or Mussolini, then he's fundamentally un-American. He's like not of us. 
he's like a he's like a, a something that landed on us from <laughs> you know from the past the just you know or from abroad and also if he's Hitler or Mussolini then it's a story that comforts us in a, in a weird way because we know how that ended right so as you quoted I, you know we defeated Hitler and Mussolini Amer- you know America defeated Hitler and Mussolini it's a narrative that then gives people this kind of false sense of comfort that Trump's end is going to be like Hitler's end or Mussolini's end and I think that the truth is really much less comfortable than that which is Trump is an American creation it doesn't mean that he doesn't have affinities or connections or you know similarities to foreign dictators in what you know Central Asia or Eastern Europe or what have you but he's something that you know America produced right that tolerance for criminality at the very top right the nexus of money and politics Trump was on television for 30 years before he was elected. He was on television for 30 years talking about trade policy and foreign policy and his thoughts on this and that why who made Trump an arbiter of anything? Like why does why did his NBC. opinion even matter? Why was he on CNN or doing interviews? It's just so bizarre to me. So those are American phenomena, right? And so I think that quote that you gave show for me was what was disturbing was that Let's not look at what happened in America to create Trump. Let's look at like Germany in the 1930s. That to me is also actually one of the reasons I started my podcast is because I was working for a candidate in South Carolina and around that time Trump came out with the whole countries and like a lot of like democrats did not tell this uncomfortable truth they told called him racist for calling those countries whole countries but they didn't say hey in the 1980s we funded all these death squads in el salvador that raped nuns and right. exterminated entire villages and that's why And then we just have like and then you have these like US trained militants with a lot of weapons and once the war is over they're going to be smuggling drugs because they have weapons and so like none of that context made through and when my candidate Mal spoke about that in South Carolina he actually had a profound effect on Republican voters like two of them came back the next week and said what Trump's doing is wrong. That's kind of where I guess I agree with you. Mm, mm, interesting. Yeah, I think that's right. So there are a lot of people in this country who I'm sure they despise Trump for a whole range of reasons and they may even like, you know, they hate his politics, not just the personality but also like his policies and politics. but there's also a way in which a lot of people and you alluded to you know sort of the establishment or in the political world in the sort of you know the world that it leads that are really uncomfortable talking about the roles that they themselves may have played in creating the context in which Trump gets elected right and it goes back to what i said before you know if you have over so many years normalized a kind of 
attitude towards the world, like, for example, the war on terror. The war on terror is going on, you know, since 2001. Nearly 20 years. It's going on forever. You know, this happened, and all the, you know, official lies that went into creating the war in Iraq, Trump didn't do those things, right? Trump inherited a political universe that was made by others. He just, he benefited from them. He exploited them. I mean, let me give you an example. So a lot of people don't like it when I talk about this, but it's true. You know, I remember, so you actually mentioned South Carolina. So in South Carolina, they had one of the Republican primary debates. I remember this really vividly. So I remember all the pundits saying, South Carolina is like a, you know, this is Jeb Bush country and they adore the military there. And and so then Trump comes out in that debate, in the Republican debate, and he says, the Iraq war was a disaster and the, you know, the Bush family and all, you know, is culpable in this disaster. Right. And the pundits immediately said on television, well, this is going to kill him with the voters of South Carolina and there's no chance. And then he, he like, he, you know, he crushed South Carolina. And then I remember him on another debate saying, you know, he was looking at each of the candidates in like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and all these other guys. And he was saying, you know, I gave you money and I, I gave you money and you're all basically corrupt politicians. You do what your donors tell you to do. And then he kind of said, I'm going to work directly for the American. You know, I fund myself and I'm going to work directly for the American people. Now, that was a lie because he's also, you know, he's corrupt and also takes money and doesn't work for the American people. But that kind of statement really won him a lot of points. He just kind of benefited from this overall sense, I think, that voters have, even on a lot of Republican voters, like that there's like a corruption in the political system and that the wars that America has been fighting for the past, you know, almost 20 years are really destructive and don't bring benefit to the public. And I think part of the reason why, and this is where kind of I put on my hat as a historian, is part of the reason why Trump, there are various reasons why Trump was elected. A lot of them have to do with how you know, kind of a poor candidate he was facing and a whole range of other things that were going on. But part of the reason I think he was elected is because of a genuine kind of, you know, disgruntlement among a lot of Americans who were tired of the system as they saw it existing in 2016. All right. And that's part of our, again, part of our responsibility as historians is to really give that uncomfortable narrative of what actually happened. I actually completely agree with you. One example would be in Wisconsin, 80,000 people were not allowed to vote because of the voter ID law. So having a historian talk about how African descendants or descendants of slaves have always been disenfranchised and talk about that pattern, like that would have been way more useful than, say, hyperventilating about whether or not Putin sent memes through Facebook. Right. I agree. I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. So one of the bad comparisons that Trump faced or was he's just like Huey Long. And I don't know, like, Huey Long was a complicated character. So, like, do you want to start talking about him? Sure. So, yeah, that's true. So, Huey Long took up quite a bit of space in that uh, infamous op-ed that I wrote. So, he was, for those who don't know, he was kind of a legendary Louisiana politician in the 20s and 30s. 
He was elected governor of Louisiana in 1928 for the first time. And then after he was governor in the 1930s, he became senator from Louisiana. Right, So he represented Louisiana in the Senate. And during that time in which he was in power, first as governor and then a senator, he became a really important figure, first in Louisiana, in the state of Louisiana, because basically he became like almost the dictator of Louisiana. I mean, his, his control in Louisiana was almost absolute. He dictated what laws were passed. Even when he was just in the Senate and he had no official function in the state, he was like really dominating Louisiana. And like there was a governor there who was basically a puppet governor doing Huey Long's bidding. And so a lot of people at the time just considered him to be a dictator, almost like, you know, actually he was at the time compared in some ways to Mussolini and other, you know, fascist dictators in Europe. But he was also a national, he became a national figure because he was really challenging President Roosevelt and the New Deal from a really populist standpoint, which was that the United States has an economy that works for very few people, and he named them, right? He's talking about the really wealthiest families in the country, and he was always speaking on behalf of the poorest people, especially since he came from Louisiana, which was a really poor state and still is a poor state. So he became like this, you know, this populist insurgent leader with national profile. And he came out with a program called Share Our Wealth. And his slogan was, you know, every man a king. And that, you know, he was nicknamed Kingfish. And he really was seen as the sort of biggest domestic political threat to President Roosevelt during the Depression. Of course, the backdrop to this is that during the Depression, the United States is in a devastating economic situation that even today people don't quite appreciate how just how bad it was with 25 to 30% unemployment and total, you know, ravaging of communities and families and uh, destitution growing and a really bad political outlook. So, Huey Long, as you point out, is a really complicated figure because on the one hand, he really was a kind of, you know, dictatorial in his political manner, right, in Louisiana. And he was frightening people because he was talking in a very populist way. Some people talked about him as a demagogue or a fascist. Other people thought he was a communist. And he was very explicit in naming and shaming the people that he thought you know, were responsible for the bad state in which many Americans lived, right? Poor people. But on the other hand, when people were comparing Trump to Huey Long, that really bothered me because I looked at Huey Long as a historical figure and I see someone who is self-made, who, you know, didn't grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth, who was, you know, entered public life fairly early on and kind of worked his way up and also Whatever one thinks about his politics and his style, I don't think there could be any doubt that he was genuinely concerned with the well-being of his constituents, with the way that Americans lived, that he was moved and disturbed by economic inequality, and that ultimately he accomplished things. I mean, Huey Long, when he was governor of Louisiana transformed a lot of the state. I mean, he actually, you know, he built roads and bridges and schools and hospitals and improved the education system and the health system. And he he did it with relatively little, you know, race baiting compared to other Southern politicians at the time. So Huey Long is a mix, right? You can look at him kind of positively and negatively. But I just thought that comparing Trump to him, to Huey Long, 
what made Trump look way too good and it made Huey Long look unfairly bad. I agree because I always thought, like, yeah, Huey Long was corrupt, but in the end, like, he'd use his power to stick it to, like, the bigwigs of the day. I mean, even the KKK were afraid of him. So he did improve lives for many descendants of the slaves because he was able to put the KKK under some kind of control. It was, yeah. So, I mean, if you look at the South at the time, racism was a major factor in politics, right, and in everyday life. And Huey Long was actually relatively popular among African-Americans because they understood that, you know, he, he didn't have it in for them, right? That was not his motivation. Like, racism was not his thing. He may have, like, had... I don't know how to define it, racist attitudes that were just very common for almost, you know, anybody in the South and from his background at that time. But compared to other Southern politicians, especially those that were considered populist, Huey Long was kind of relatively free of that. And then in addition, as you just said, like his ultimate motivation was to fight the entrenched interests. Not in a, I, I look at Trump. Like, I'll be honest with you. I just think Trump is completely fake. Like when he says, you know, the, the whole thing with draining the swamp and, you know, fighting uh, the int- interests and the elites, I just think that's nonsense. I don't think he has any interest in doing any of that. I just think he's fundamentally corrupt and he has other kinds of interests and he's just bloviating. Whereas I look at Huey Long, there the problem is someone who is genuinely committed to the public good, genuinely committed to helping the poor and to fighting the entrenched interests. You mentioned the KKK, but his real enemy was Standard Oil, right? Standard Oil was, they hated him because he was, (laughs) they had complete control of the economy of the state before he took over as governor and he had to fight them and he defeated them. But then on the other hand, right, the price that we pay if you're living, you know, you long as your governor, as your senator, is that kind of you lose any democratic control, right? You, you're, you're now, in a way, living under almost a kind of dictatorial regime. And I think a lot, by the way, a lot of people in the world have that kind of, you know, those kinds of questions, you know, in the so-called, in the developing world. A lot of my students come from those parts of the world, and they ask the same question. If you want development in really poor countries, do you also have to, you know, relinquish, you know, democratic rights? You know, do you, is it worth it to get, you know, development, economic development, which Huey Long delivered in Louisiana, if you're not going to have democratic rights. But then if you have democratic rights and you can vote and, you know, and you're sort of free to express yourself, but then everybody just stays in terrible poverty and inequality, then, you know, is that worth it? So that's for me, those are some of the historical questions that come up with Huey Long. And I also think that makes it really different from Trump. Uh, Yeah. One accomplishment that I do want to highlight that explains like the big difference is that Huey Long had a program for adult literacy and also, like, had a free textbook and meal program. So That's right. But it seems like the papers of the day didn't like him because he did not follow the rules of proper etiquette. Do you concur? Yeah. And it's true what you say. So the newspaper, it's more that they people really feared him and despised him. Well, people, I should say who. So 
if you read the equivalent of what today would be the Beltway media, right, uh, the elite media in New York or, you know, Washington, D.C., and a lot of the sort of, you know, educational elite of the country back even back then, no, they, they thought they were horrified by Huey Long. They thought that he was a fascist in waiting. They basically called him America like the American Hitler or the American Mussolini. I think part of it is because of what you said. Like, it's, so part of it was his style. I mean, I, if you see, I really recommend people interested in this, they should seek him out, like watch clips of him talking, and they'll see, you know, someone who's really, you know, what they used to call authentic, right? He's not making any kind of pandering to elites. He's talking to his constituents, and he's really clearly representing them. So people were horrified by his, you know, his vulgarity and his style and the way that he didn't look like a respectable politician and that sort of thing. But then I also think that you were genuinely, you know, there were people who thought like it's really frightening to have a guy who is completely dismissive of the democratic process at some point. Like, they, you know, they basically considered him to be maybe he's interested in doing good, but He's not, you know, he doesn't understand that he's living in a democracy, right? And that's a, that was a legitimate argument about Huey Long. But then the other part of it is that he was frightening a lot of people because of his the substance of what he was proposing, which was to take away their privileges. If you're a, a really wealthy person and you're in one of the members of the wealthiest families in America, and you see that today as well, right, in their sort of reactions to political events, then Huey Long is terrifying to you and you you hate him because Huey Long is saying that, you know, you should have a cap on wealth in America. Nobody should be too wealthy. And that, you know, that there's no justification for having this kind of concentrated wealth among very few people when so many Americans are starving. Can I quickly read his share our wealth proposal so people know what he was proposing? Cap? Personal fortunes at fifty million each, which is about like maybe five hundred million today. Limit annual income to one million each. Limit inheritances to five million dollars each. Guarantee every family an annual income of two thousand. So that would be like thirty thousand today. Free college and vocational training. Pensions for all people over 60, 30 hour work week, a four week vacation for every worker. Hey, this is Hamish McKenzie. I'm one of the founders of Substack, which is the platform that hosts the Historically podcast and newsletter. And Historically is funded purely through subscriptions. So people like you can go and pay some money to get the podcast and some subscriber-only episodes and subscriber-only newsletters, and that will keep Historically totally independent and uncompromised. It's historically.substack.com. But but then, I guess one thing that does make me uncomfortable is towards the end of his life, he kind of aligned with Father Coughlin, who was very anti-Semitic. Can you explain what caused that alliance? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So the, uh, Father Coughlin, let's just give a very quick background. Father Coughlin was a Catholic priest in Michigan. Originally, he was from Canada. 
And he became a national figure basically doing radio and talking about politics on the radio. And he became probably the biggest radio personality in America for a while in the 1930s. And his ideas and his kind of passions had some overlap with Huey Long. So he also railed against banks and international bankers and the concentration of wealth. And he spoke on behalf of, like, you know, the forgotten people and poor people and so on. So I think that at the height of both of their sort of public profiles, you know, like around 1934, 1935, the two of them kind of, they didn't, I won't say they went together, but they started to sort of look at each other as maybe they could make common cause. And there was some speculation that Coughlin was going to kind of support Huey Long if Huey Long was going to make a serious run at, you know, trying to become president. So a couple things I should say about that. One is that Coughlin really became explicitly anti-Semitic and like speaking in an anti-Semitic way, like later on, like in the late 30s. And by then, Huey Long was dead because Huey Long was murdered in 1935. And so... It's hard to say that Huey Long made an alliance with and Coughlin the anti-Semite because it's like that's a little bit of a later development. What is true is that Coughlin was saying things like, you know, there's code words, right? If you're talking about like, quote, unquote, international bankers, that's often like a, you know, that's anti-Semitic code a little bit. But by the end of the 30s, Coughlin was saying very explicitly anti-Semitic things that were almost like what the Nazis were saying, you know, the Nazi rhetoric that was in Germany at the time, right? So that was clear. Now, the other part of it is, I think one of the reasons they made common cause is that the two of them weren't just about ideas and passions. I think they both had egos, like most people in that position. People that we elect president, people that we elect to high office usually, you know, have gigantic egos. And Huey Law was no exception. And I think Coughlin himself was no exception. And I think they both developed an obsession with President Roosevelt and really saw President Roosevelt as like the biggest obstacle to them achieving what they wanted. And I think it made them both a little bit crazy. And I think it put them in, in kind of in cahoots a little bit. So just like everything else with Huey Long, I think that it's like a bit of a mix. I think that you're right that to, for him to go with Coughlin makes us view him a little bit more negatively. But I also think that, you know, this is part of the complexity of the man, right? That he is driven by his ideas that you just quoted, right? What the Share Our Wealth program, which sounds like really progressive and forward-looking in terms of, you know, eradicating inequality, bringing about economic justice and all the things that he was proposing. But at the same time, you know, so that he was kind of corrupt, that he was dictatorial, that he made alliances with really dubious people. And that's how often how history works, right? We have people that may like their ideas, but we really don't like their behavior and vice versa. Yeah, like one thing I'd also want to talk about, like quickly, is that when he was governor, like he did some really good things like establish statewide school busing so that rural kids could go to school. He abolished poll taxes. So, yeah, but then... Yeah, his goal as governor was to lift people up from poverty. I think that's his main goal. And he did a lot of things. As I said, he 
you know, Louisiana was not only very, very poor, but it was very underdeveloped. I mean, it had very few, you know, roads and bridges and train tracks. And it was, and, and he, in just a few years, completely transformed, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but he completely transformed the infrastructure of the state as governor. And of course, when you transform the infrastructure of a, of a very poor place, the people that you're helping most are the poor people. You know, you're connecting them to cities, you're connecting them to each other. He also was an advocate for people having radios because that would connect them to the wider world and, you know, educate them and then have an automobile because that brings them closer to markets and to be able to, to, to go to school and to, you know, drive themselves to, to distant places. And even in higher education, like Louisiana State University today is, you know, it's an important research university. And he, he did that. I mean, he basically took this you know, backwater college and turned it into a major research university. And he, as you point out, he saved for schools, like the textbook program. So I think that Huey Long really, really liked power, and he had an ego, and he had ambition, and he was dictatorial, but he also brought real benefits to people, that he was genuinely driven by the desire to make life better for the people that he considered to be the ones who had been most screwed over by uh, American life. And to just go back to Trump in that sense, I do not give Trump that credit. I just don't. I mean, there are some people that think that Trump is somehow driven in some way by a genuine affection for, you know, people who have been forgotten, that sort of thing. I just, I don't, I don't buy it. I don't, I don't see it myself. That's one of the, the things that kind of pushed me to make that distinction between Trump and Huey Long. And it was partly also to somewhat salvage Huey Long's reputation before he just becomes, you know, known as the pre, you know, you know Trump before Trump or something like that. Exactly. Well, one thing that's kind of shady that he did was the way he fundraised for his campaigns. Do you want to talk about yeah. the deduct box? Uh, so let's put that in context. So he wasn't playing fair in Louisiana, all right? I'm going to put it mildly. So he didn't have any, or he had very little respect for what we would consider today, like, you know, electoral integrity or the democratic process or, you know, the vote. He would actually go into the state Senate when he was senator. Like, so he had no official function in the state, right? He's even supposed to be D.C., you know, being senator. And he would just go in and he would like just say, okay, this law is passed and this law is passed and this law is passed and this meeting is adjourned. And he <laughs> sent everybody home. Like that's what he did. So that's why, again, he was corrupt when it came to like the actual electoral process. But a lot of people forgave him for that because of what they felt that he was bringing them. I mean, they looked at it's, you know, it's very hard to judge people at the time when they're living in such desperate poverty. You know, they're looking at Huey Long and you could tell them, hey, this guy is like, you know, stuffing ballot boxes and he's, you know, stealing votes and he's, he's telling people what to do and he brooks no dissent and so on. And they're going to look at you and they're going to say, look, I, this man built a road next to my building, next to my town, like he, he or he built a hospital, right? Yeah, that now, you know, whatever, save my family. So that's the kind of trade-off that people are often willing to make in when they're living in very desperate situations. I guess for me, like, you can't 
fundamentally have democracy when it's like starvation for one, because that's more like a hostage situation. So right. is it even possible to have democracy with that kind of wealth inequality? I agree. I mean, this isn't just my political opinion. All right. So uh, like my historical, my, you know, my opinion as a historian is that democracy is incompatible with extreme levels of inequality. It's just not tenable. Okay? You might have the form of democracy, but it's not going to hold up. And I, my take on this, this, this is partly what's been happening in the United States. Right? A lot of the faults of our democracy are being exposed. I should like, here's a, it's actually a good opportunity to bring up FDR a little bit, mm-hmm. because I think one of the reasons that Huey Long, in the end, well, I mean, he was assassinated, right? So we don't know what would have happened if he'd like lived, if he, you know, would have been even more successful politically. But FDR was himself really, really good at convincing a plurality of the American people that he was working exclusively for their, you know, for the public good and for their interests. And he made it very clear, even in his first administration, that he was not going to let the sort of the traditional moneyed interests, you know, put obstacles in the programs and the initiatives that he wanted to do through the New Deal. Like by 1936, I think this was also partly a response to how popular and successful Huey Long was. By 1936, FDR, for his second election, was campaigning like a populist. He made that speech in Madison Square Garden in 1936, a famous speech about how the moneyed interests have been fighting him and, and they hate him and he welcomes their hatred. That's like, you know... Imagine someone like, you know, saying that today as a, as a presidential candidate, that would just be mind blowing. But this is FDR, right? In 1936. So I think, again, at that time, FDR himself was able to kind of co-opt or adopt a lot of the Huey Long type populism. And I'm using populism in the historic, you know, in the historical sense of the word and use it for his own, you know, for his own political benefit. You know, FDR was really popular with the poorest Americans, and including African Americans. And the people that hated him most were the conservative, you know, economic, uh, the you know, financial elites, conservatives, the right wing. You know, they thought he was the enemy. They still think that. <laughs> so he was shot, I believe, in 1935 in the capital of Louisiana, who killed him? So it was the uh, relative, this is a long, kind of a long story, but he was, he was killed by the relative, was it the nephew of someone that Huey Long, that, you know, that considered himself like had been targeted by Huey Long. There wasn't a direct, like it wasn't a political assassination exactly, like it wasn't killed for his views, but he was killed as a kind of a result of his personal behavior, like the way that he, you know, dealt with people. Like that's the dark side of Huey Long, right? The way in which he kind of just, you know, would dispose of people or he'd like even, you know, throw people aside when he thought, you know, if he thought it was going to help him politically. 
So there was like a, I don't, this is an assassination that I've never fully, you know, understood, but there was like a personal motivation for it. Yeah. And apparently Carl Weitz was the guy who killed him. I believe it was because Huey Long gerrymandered his district out of existence from the state legislature. So it was kind of like a revenge for dirty dealings. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much for joining us. How do people find you on social media? Oh, they could find me fairly easily on Twitter, where my bio just says that I'm a historian, but I tweet as a you know regular person. So I'm at uh, Moshik Temkin under underscore uh, Moshik underscore Temkin uh, on Twitter. That's probably the best place to find me on social media. And I really hope you will come back to talk about your other books and things like that. This was a lovely conversation, and I learned a lot. Well, thank you very much for having me. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye. According to the tables which we have assembled, it is our estimate that 4% of the American people own 85% of the wealth of America, and that over 70% of the people of America don't own enough to pay the debts that they owe. How many men ever went to a barbecue and would let one man take off the table what's intended for nine-tenths of the people to eat? The only way you'll ever be able to feed the balance of the people is to make that man come back and bring back some of that grub he ain't got no business with. Now, how are you going to feed the balance of the people? What's Morgan and Baruch and Rockefeller and Mellon going to do with all that grub? They can't eat it. They can't wear the clothes. They can't live in the house. Give them a yacht. Give them a pilot. Send them to Reno and give them a new wife when they want it. That's what they want. But when they've got everything on the God's living earth that they can eat and they can wear and they can live in, and all that their children can live in and wear and eat and all their children's children can use, then we got to call Mr. Morgan and Mr. Mellon and Mr. Rockefeller back and say, come back here. Put that stuff back on this table here that you took away from here that you don't need. Leave something else for the American people to consume. And that's the problem. We're not going to destroy the Gulf Refining Company. We're not going to destroy the Standard Oil Company. But we're going to say that the limit of any one man's stock ownership in the Standard Oil Company is from three to five million dollars to that individual, and that the balance of the people of America own the balance of what the Standard Oil Company's worth. All right. Then, we start from the bottom, that the 25 or more million American families shall have a homestead, a home, and the comforts of a home, including an automobile and a radio, the things that take 
to live on. We say to America, 125 million, none shall be too big, none shall be too poor, none shall work too much, none shall be idle. No luxurious mansions empty, none walking the streets, none impoverished, none in pestilence, none in want. But in the land, blessed by the smile of the Creator, with everything to be consumed, to be eaten, to be worn, that America will become a land, sharing the fruits of the land, not for the favored few, not to satisfy greed, but that all may live in a land in which the Lord has provided an abundance sufficient for the luxury and convenience of the people in general, I think. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.